Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, I don't want to go too far into a conversation about forgiveness because I want to keep going. But in the spirit of forgiveness, <laughs> when I talk about accepting or allowing as a practice of forgiveness, I'm not talking about passivity. So, it's active. And I think so often when we think about forgiveness, we mistake We mistake forgiveness for reconciliation. Reconciliation is when you're focused on the other and the relationship with the other and how that's healed. Forgiveness is what's happening in your own heart. And a really interesting thing about forgiveness is that a lot of research shows that one of the things that helps forgiveness go deeper in someone's life is assertiveness. What is this? Assertiveness. Really speaking up about what one feels, which is really interesting, isn't it? Like, like taking it out of the closet. Right? Wow, these feelings are so intense. And then we stop the kind of ruminating because they're out of the closet and we can start to work with them, allow them. So when I say forgiveness, I really want you to contemplate what it means in your own heart to give enough space around somebody that even though there might be intense feeling, the reactive charge is starting to dissipate. Rather than focusing on 
how it manifests in your relationship with him. Because that's what I would call reconciliation. But I can say more about this after. When you can allow something in, then you get to the third phase, which is investigation. Now, most of the ways that meditation is taught, I, <coughs> I find just ends here. Where we stop, we just accept things as they are, and then you have the sort of Eckhart Tolle model. <laughs> Did we just record that? <laughs> where there really can be a sense of passivity. Where, oh, we just observe how everything's changing, it's all in flux, it's moving through awareness. Um, once you can accept what's in awareness, then we start looking closely at what's there from a place of stability, from a place of calm abiding, from a place of equanimity. And then we investigate what's arising through the lens of the three characteristics, which I was going to write inside this circle here, but you all know from the first class. The first characteristic is dukkha. So when something arises, we look at it. Is this dukkha? Or we look at it and say, oh, dukkha. Here is the wanting again. Here's the craving. And we embrace dukkha. That's how we investigate it. Ah, dukkha. Which is a way of helping you not want not making the attempt to make it different than it is. And we investigate through the second characteristic, which is anitya, impermanence. And you might ask, when something heavy arises, so this is very good to do with chronic pain, uh, is this impermanent? Or is this permanent? You might ask. So again, we're investigating what's arising through the lens of dukkha, impermanence, really noticing oh, the arising of sensation. Here's the arising of story, the arising of anxiety, the arising of fear, the arising of jealousy. Oh, it's, it's dukkha. When jealousy is present, so is lack. When envy is present, so is stress. When wanting things to be different than they are is present, so is pain. And that's how we investigate dukkha. And then, when something heavy hits us, it feels permanent. I mean, do, does anybody here have habits that just feel permanent? or certain body sensations when they show up, feels permanent. Mm -hmm. I had a few years in, when I was 20 where I was really depressed. And I remember waking up in the morning and just thinking, oh, it, this is going to be like this. The rest of my life is going to be like this. Which is what motivated me to practice. It's just always going to be like this. 
And then to see, oh, why that story? Why, when this arises, does that have to be the story? Is that the only way to relate to this? Right? And, and when something difficult arises, we feel like those two things are coupled and inseparable. And then the third characteristic, so this is a third lens you can use for investigating, is not self. This is not I, me, and mine. So one way you could do that is you could um, just sit breathing. (coughs) And then when there's some calmness, I'll wait. When there's some calmness, then you say to yourself, who's breathing? (laughs) And then God calls on the iPhone. Um, But you don't answer the question. So you wait till there's calmness, and then you feel just the quiet breath, and then you say, who's breathing? And you just watch what happens. And then if you start getting ideas, oh, this is really cool, I'm breathing, or or, nobody's breathing, then you've missed it. So then you let go of those answers, you come back to the breath, and you do it again and again. Or you can do who is listening. I like to do this in Shavasana, Um, If I have a very still Shavasana, I'll open my eyes as if I'm a corpse, like with the eyes open, and I'll just say, who? (laughs) And then whenever like something sticks, I'll just say to myself, who? (coughs) So there's this feeling of like the world happening, but it's not happening to anybody. And it's not that there is nobody, it's just that it's just the world happening. And so this is really important because once there's some space, because you've stopped and allowed in what's there, then you can start to investigate what's there. And what I love about this model is that it gives you some guidelines for how to investigate because we're all inner psychotherapists and psychoanalysts analyzing all the content in terms of our history. And that can be an obstacle, actually, in meditation practice. Because it can be more storytelling. So what I like about this is saying, well, there's another way to use your mind to investigate what's showing up but it it doesn't refer back to a self. And you investigate it in terms of dukkha, in terms of impermanence, and in terms of um, not self. And so when I work with students, refining their meditation practice, I'm always thinking in terms of this model of, well, what, what do we need to focus on more in terms of how they're investigating their experience? Or maybe someone's really started to see impermanence, 
maybe we'll switch to uh, the not-self perspective. Yeah. How does this fit into returning to the object of meditation? Because, um, for example, like in Davy's example, uh, when I start to realize there's something I need to accept in my meditation, I usually leave that alone and go back to the breath. And I don't mm -hmm. investigate or I don't. Mm -hmm. So where where is the point where you think, okay, I'll, I'll follow this rather than coming back to the object yeah. of meditation? So the way I would, I would test you is can you sit and follow the breath and notice how when you come back to your breathing whatever you are caught up in changes can you see that and if you say yes then I'll say oh well she's got some stopping going on she's sort of allowing something in and there's probably some calmness that's it and then I would know okay well then maybe she can investigate a little bit but if you said, oh, yeah, my mind is so busy, and every time I hear the opera upstairs, I just, like, go crazy because I, you, I'm Italian, and it, it makes me feel so passionate, and I just want to jump out of my seat and, and sing, you know, then I would think, oh, boy, she, she's not ready at all yet for investigating. So you can leave the breath and then go investigate. But then if you start investigating and it gets too analytical or too personal, then I would bring you back again to the breathing. Does that make sense? Yes. And so then, so I've wandered, I've wandered, I've come back to the breath, I've wandered, I've come back to the breath. Uh, do I investigate or would you advise your student to investigate uh, the thought that they had already left or wait until something new arises and determine, okay, is this worth investigating? Do you go back to that? It depends on the person. And it depends on the circumstance, and it depends what's coming up. Um, Doug? So you just said the magic word that hooked me, which was analytic, and, and that's really where I'm stuck here. Yeah. When you say investigate, I always think of investigate for, for me, it's investigate for a root cause, which, oh. and I'm kind of letting go of those words. Yeah. But are there cases where something would not be dukkha or not be impermanent? Or are there cases where it would be a self? And as I think, I think, well, you know, I can't think of, maybe I'm, it's too obvious, but I have to say, it's not so much an investigation as, as I've heard it, it seems like a checklist. So yeah. maybe is the word, what am I investigating? And maybe it's the word I'm stuck on. I don't know if it's the word investigating, but it's the attitude. So they're, they're, the way we think, because of our education system, is analytical. When you ask a question, you're looking for an answer. In contemplative practice, that doesn't work. And actually, I love the word contemplation, because it has in the middle the word temple. And the difference between analysis and contemplation is in contemplation, we ask a question without an interest in an answer. Charles also has the word template buried in it, which seems to me to be analytic. Of course, you will see that. Um, yeah, yeah. T temp template in terms of these, these questions around the three characteristics. But it's important to understand that the three characteristics are just questions that you're posing to experience. Is this dukkha? Is this permanent? Is this eternal 
just as a tool for contemplation, not as trying to find an answer. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, like, um, in addition to the three characteristics, yeah. could the investigation also just be kind of like open-ended? Like sometimes I sometimes I ask myself, like when, like just how am I feeling? Like what does this actually feel like? Yeah. Without looking for a word to answer it, but just trying mm-hmm. to like. Mm-hmm experience yeah. it? Yeah, uh, I have a friend, Martine Batchelor, who uh, studied when she was younger as a Korean nun in the Zen tradition. And uh, the only practice her teacher gave her was, what is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, all, and you do it all day. You do it when you're meditating, you do it when you're walking around, wherever something is happening, you just say, what is this? What is this? And it's a really fascinating thing to do, like, especially for people who have anxiety, this can be a good one, like some anxiety resonance, what is this? And you don't answer it, it's just like, oh, what is this? And it just brings you more intimate with the experience. So that can be an open-ended question, for sure. Uh, can we go one more? Uh, so the last one is um, non ID, non-identification. When something is arising, we stop, we allow it in. If we can allow it in, we investigate it. And then while we investigate it, we don't identify with it. Which sometimes just means letting yourself off the hook. It's not you. So, if this is dukkha, if this side is dukkha, then this side is not self. In the yoga tradition, in the yoga sutra, the word that's used to describe this is purusha. What's also interesting in the Yoga Sutra is Purusha is defined as Swarupa Shunya. Swa means self, Rupa is form, Shunya means empty. So, so Purusha is actually empty of self-form. In other words, uh, don't reify this as a thing. And most translators translate Purusha as pure awareness. Right? So this is selfing. And this is just pure awareness without a self in it. Okay? And I think that that's helpful to really see that this whole thing here is the creation of a sense of self. It's personalizing thing. It's identifying with what's arising. And we can also look at that from this side and see this is just pure awareness which, by the way, is empty of self-form. In other words, it's not a thing. But, um, I have a little bit of a different take on this. Because the word that was chosen to describe this, Purusha, at that time in India, meant 
Does anybody know what the word Purusha meant? Consciousness and is often Consciousness. A person. A human being. Yeah. Purusha just means person. Okay? So what I love about that is that maybe the goal of practice is actually learning how to become a person. That maybe this word was used ironically. So that we had this sense that actually when the mind clears up, and I don't mean the mind gets clear, I just mean the, the craving clears out of our focus, what's left? A person. You. Not the you you think is you. So that you're free to be nobody. And that's why I always say that the goal of practice is eccentricity. Because when you're free to be who you are, in the text we say, that's nirvana. But actually, on the street, we would say, people who practice over a long period of time become more eccentric. Because there's less self-consciousness, less self-referencing. You see? So Purusha is a person, a human being. And this is a self. And when you can see selfing, you're free to be a person. Do you understand what I mean by this? You're free to be who you are. Stephen, do you have a question? Why are you putting Purusha with not-self, but Prakriti is not-self? Really? Well, when you look into the translation, Purusha would be uh, consciousness, or as you're saying, self, either or. But yeah. You'll find both when you're translating yeah. them. And when you're translating Prakriti, you'll find unconscious or not-self. So I'm just wondering Yeah. it was just over... There. So you, usually prakriti is translated as material impermanent existence and purusha is translated as what doesn't change. What doesn't change. But I feel that that was the translation in Sankhya philosophy that predated the Yoga Sutra. And that the Yoga Sutra is influenced to a very strong degree by Buddhist teachings. Because when it's time to translate Purusha, they call it empty. Which, by the way, no translators ever translate that word. Uh, if you go through all your translations of the Yoga Sutra, you will see that translators don't ever translate the word Purusha. I mean, Ashunya, which is a whole other topic. Because two things. One is most translators are superimposing a Vedantic interpretation of the Yoga Sutra that reifies Purusha as a thing, which is exactly the opposite of how Patanjali describes Purusha. Or secondly, they are Western translators who are superimposing a Judeo-Christian worldview 
which says that spirit and matter are separate. But for the practitioner, oh, so for the academic, that's all good theory. Uh, For the seeker, that's all good theory. But for a practitioner, the experience of not-self is the experience of being who you are. Who you are. But not who you think you are. So that's why I'm pushing my personal interpretation of the word Purusha as a person. Which is to remind us that as your practice deepens, you're free to be who you are. Good luck. <laughs> Could you have your hand up? Oh, I was just, I was just thinking then, sort of the, the thoughts of who we are then, and you know, I, I like espresso, or I like, you know, like certain things. I like the colors. I think um, those become kind of mm, like fun things we play with sort of in the world and don't take so seriously. Yeah. You sort of navigate through the world and play with these. Yeah. Yeah? And, and yeah, does that make sense? Because so that's the point of any I, of it. <laughs> yeah. So I feel a little bit like we have a cultural interpretation problem, which is that our culture is obsessed with the self. Mm-hmm. We're trying to analyze ourselves. We're trying to improve ourselves. We're obsessed with the self. So when we hear the teaching of not-self, the way we're translating not-self is that, oh, then the self doesn't exist. It's like too far. So there is a self. Oh, no, I'm nobody. Which is just like reverse theology. A more helpful way in our culture to think about the self is that it's fiction. It's a piece of art. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly crafting the self so that the self can be many different things. And in seeing how the self is many different things, we see that it inherently is not one thing. In other words, what I want you to come away with in this understanding of Mm not-self is not a negative but actually a positive that we're different people with different people. You're not the same person with every person you're with. Sometimes we have discontinuous senses of self where you feel yourself one way and then you don't feel that way anymore and you feel like a different sense of self. It's called high school. High school students really get this. Because they really get impermanence, they really get suffering, and they really get that the self, they're making it up. Yeah. Or the culture's making it up for them, and they don't like that. So in, in response, they're going to make up a different self. Like, all women cut their hair this way, so I'm just going to shave my head. And then next month, I'm going to make it pink. And then next month, I'm going to get a mohawk. And just to show that I can actually do whatever I want with this self. And it's one of the beautiful things about 
youth. One of the only beautiful things about youth. <laughs> Adolescence. <laughs> puberty. That's the only good thing about puberty is what you can do with your hair. <laughs> but the point of this is, is that what if we stop thinking so much of, oh, getting rid of the self, getting rid of the ego, letting go of self, and instead say, I'm so many different selves. And, be, and, and because of that, the self is um, a, a, an elastic, plastic, malleable art project. The self is a performance. And the self is constantly being performed in different ways because of causes and conditions. And there's no actor inside all that that's choosing the costumes. And that way we can see not-self. And that when our face is glued too close to the mask, then we get dukkha. So the key in practice is how not to let the mask stick to your face. Carl Jung once said, there's nothing wrong with a persona as long as you have a lot of them. (laughs) Are you able to shift? You're so many characters, not just the ones that other people have constructed for you. Yes? What about uh, neuroscience? Like, what mm-hmm. about the chemicals in your brain? Like, I've also heard in psychotherapy, like mm-hmm. with my therapist, for example, mm-hmm. he talks about traumas happening at a really young age. Mm-hmm. It programs your brain in a certain way. So, how does that come into this? Those are the samskaras. Okay. Traumas at a young age do influence the samskaras in really, really profound ways. And that influences perception. And yes, it's elastic. It can be changed. And if you think of it in terms of genetics, it's really interesting because every moment in the way we're paying attention, we're turning genes on and off. And then you can think so that... uh, when, let's say, you have a kid, they... Oh, you said you were 40, so I'm sorry to bring this up. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's certain groups where you just shouldn't say, when yeah. you have a kid, because suddenly they're all like, shit, am I supposed to be having a kid? Does he think I'm supposed to have a kid? And like, oh my God. Last week I didn't want a kid, then I turned 40, and now I'm like, when I have a kid? And <laughs> um then the offspring has those same genetics and is then going to continue that work, (coughs) you see? So in a way, like, we might have to revisit this whole idea of past lives. Because of our understanding of genetics, there are past lives and there are future lives, but they just don't have anything to do with you. Caused by trauma? Caused by the samskaras, which is genetics. So if something happens to that code that pool then it continues in space and time that's ancestry and how you respond to trauma is also influenced by your genetics and your circumstance and your environment so this is to say again that your sensory perception is not tabula rasa it's not clean 
It's not pure. It's influenced by everything you think, every moment of your experience. It's influenced by your ancestors, and it's not fixed. And to me, this is one of the best ways of looking at other people who are struggling with more compassion. To see that, oh, those are the causes and conditions they're working with. And look, they're doing their best. Just like I'm doing my best with these causes and conditions. And sometimes there are certain traumas or certain habits where you're not going to work through it in your lifetime. Or you have a friend who has a drug addiction and you have to sometimes pull back and say, okay, I've done everything I can for the last 15 years. Or you have a mother who's alcoholic, done everything I can for 40 years. And then out of love, now I'm going to step back because I realize their karma just has to burn itself up. Like I have a friend a few years ago and their alcoholic father was dying in the hospital and they were a meditator and they, they, the father just really wanted a drink. And it was probably like the last days of his life. And she said, what should I do? Like I'm, I really want him to heal. And I said, go to the liquor store, <laughs> find out what he likes to drink, and go get him a drink. This is not about you. His patterns are, he's doing his best, actually. And she said, what are you talking about? He's not doing his best. He goes, he's doing his best. So we might sometimes need to turn that to ourselves a little bit is that there were things that happened to us in our life that we could not control. So how do we stop running from those and accept, oh, this is some of the stuff I have to deal with. I'm 40 years old now and I have this tendency and that tendency. And, and just to allow that in a little bit. And to investigate it. And also, not to identify with it. These are the causes and conditions. It's not me, it's not my fault. Even though I have to take responsibility. Let's stop here. <laughs> I'm going to drink some water and then we'll take two questions and then we'll chant. They have to be amazing questions. <laughs> Is there anybody who hasn't spoken much that has a comment or a question? Okay. <laughs> oh, you just haven't spoken much. Uh, I recognize that 
they've gone through this uh, traumatic upbringing of being raised by sociopaths. <laughs> at the same time, they're inflicting all this harm to the planet, which I care deeply for, and the communities, and I see that value system being replicated in all types of relationships all across our communities. Yeah. And it's like, something I always battle with is like, this rage of the injustice, but then also recognizing that like, these people as well had families, went through all kinds of probably crazy trauma, mm -hmm. making them accept this as a normal situation. Yeah. So we have to hold both those things. You have to say things like, there is a 1%. And you also have to say, there's no 1%. There's people that are the 1%. And if you know people who are in the 1%, one of the characteristics of people in the 1% is that they're paranoid that they're the 1%. And actually, they're lonely that they're the one percent. Mm -hmm. I'm referring to this economic model of the one percent and the ninety-nine percent. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we have to do both things and say, okay, structurally there is a one percent, and also there's no one percent. And how do you hold both those things? Mm -hmm. Rob Ford is a maniac. Rob Ford is in tremendous denial. Rob Ford might be a really good dad. There might be a way he tucks his kids into bed that might actually be really beautiful. And that's what those kids know as their dad. And also, Rob Ford really needs help. And also, Rob Ford should not be allowed to open his mouth as the mayor of Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> How do you hold all these things? So you see the, the structural element and you see a human heart there. That's a mess. Politicians are in denial, generally. They tell lies, generally. And so our job is not just to point out those lies. Our job is to create truths that are so powerful that those lies don't have any power. So that's why I've said at the end of every talk this week that our practice is to create a culture of compassion so that we can create values in a culture to demonstrate, not just philosophize, about what a culture of awakening will look like. And that can have a lot of power when you see that greed and anger and ignorance are not just things that you have to work on in yourself. There are also institutional forms of greed and anger and ignorance, and we have to work on that level also. And when both are happening, you have a spiritual practice. <coughs> both together. Just to follow up quickly, um, the, the final um, mantra at the end when you say, may our troops have uh, compassion, is this yeah. what you're referring to? But well, uh, the way that, okay, so that chant is called the Brahma Viharas, may all beings be happy. It's in the Buddhist tradition and in the Yoga Sutras, which we're going to look at tomorrow. But uh, 
where I trained in my Zen practice was at a monastery uh, in a town called Cornwall on Hudson, which Caitlin can tell you about. And our neighbor is um, West Point, which is uh, one of the most, uh, I think it's the largest military academy on the planet. So uh, when we would meditate in the morning, you would hear uh, like the sirens and uh, all the stuff they were doing at West Point, helicopters going back and forth. So uh, we used to always pray in the morning for all the troops. So I kind of just had this uh, mantra that came to me, which was, uh, I hope that troops realize wisdom and compassion. So I just tacked it on to the end of the chant and told people that it's traditional. <laughs> which is just what everybody does now. Uh, but, but if you reflect on it, it's not just our troops as Canadians or Americans. It's also our internalized troops. That has to be looked at also. You can get rid of all the troops and stop investing in the military. And there's still work to do on these troops. We've seen so many huge social movements <coughs> in the past century, especially in the last five years, overthrowing dictatorship and replacing it with new kinds of uh, uh, democracy that are not very inspiring. Because we have these internal dictators that also have to be part of social change. So, let's chant. Vitaly gets the first question tomorrow. Rose, do you want to lead the chant? Sure. Okay. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. 
Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.